Well, I just remember as a young Christian uh, finding uh, Van Til's book in a bookstore, and this is uh, after uh, many years, actually, of reading a lot on apologetics, and I picked up a volume by Van Til. It was absolutely excruciating reading uh, for a young Christian, but I, I, I plowed through the defense of the faith. Uh, this was, oh man, over 20 years ago now. Uh, but, you know, Van Til supplied something to my Christian worldview that I really couldn't get anywhere else uh, in terms of just the impossibility of the contrary, antithesis, all of those things. And uh, I'm so grateful for Van Til as a theologian. But today I want to talk about Van Til somewhat with respect to being a theologian that was is, is somewhat neglected and how we can benefit from him. And so back with us again is Dr. Lane G. Tipton from the Reformed Forum. Uh, Brother Lane, welcome back to the show. Brother, thank you for joining me again. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an unqualified delight. Amen, brother. Well, let's just jump right in as we continue to talk about Lane's book, uh, the Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. Maybe on a biographical note, uh, Lane, why don't we talk a little bit about Van Til himself? Why do you think Van Til, in the uh, you know in the in the academic world, is somewhat neglected and misunderstood? Uh, I've heard you mention that a couple of times. Um, what do you? Why do you think that is? Is he too simple? Is he too biblical? Uh, is he too reformed? Um, what is what 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 do you think has happened there to his career uh, in scholarship? Well, that's a that's a really good question. It's a, it's a fairly complex one uh, on on one level, but I'll say I'll say this by way of orientation. I think that Van Til has been uh, so neglected recently, or so rejected recently, due in large part to some of the failures that derive from second-generation Vantillians. Um, and I'll give you a, a, just a couple of brief examples. Um, I, do, I think that when um, John Frame wrote his book, Van Til, An Analysis of His Thought, I think many people took Frame to be because that was published in about 1994, right as Greg Bonson passed away. Frame publishes this volume, and it sends Frame into a kind of ascendancy as an interpreter of Van Til. And what happened around the same time, and I'm going to say somewhere around 1995, this is all from memory, Frame wrote an article entitled Something Close to Biblicism. And when you talk, Biblicism is the doctrine of reflecting on biblical teaching in a way that is not in conformity to the ecumenical creeds and the Reformed confessions. That's just how you, that, that's the most basic way to talk about Biblicism. It's me and my Bible, and I'm not going to read it informed by ecumenical creeds and Reformed confessions. And Richard Muller wrote a response to that, didn't like it. Um, Frame wasn't advocating for Biblicism in the way I just defined it. It was something close, but that sets people off. Reformed Christians are not Biblicists. They're not something close to Biblicists. They're creedal and they're confessional, and they have a very well-established identity. Well, uh, a few years later, Frame publishes No Other God. A few years after that, in the late mid-90s, a few years after that, his doctrine of God. Uh, 
And on page 502, which I cite in my book, he says that God has two modes of existence. On the one side, he has an eternal mode of existence when he's not related to creation. On the other side, he has an historical mode of existence. And when he relates to creation, he becomes temporal. He has a temporal identity, two modes of existence. This isn't the two natures of Jesus Christ. This is two modes of divine existence in creation. Well, brother, let me just say that, say that this is a fair observation. I think many people take frames biblicism, or something close to it, frames mutualism, his denial of God's unqualified immutability, and they say, if that is Van Til, then for those two main reasons, biblicism and mutualism, I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, if you fast forward it, um, or, eh, well, I wouldn't say fast forward too much, but beginning in 2003 up until around 2018, another uh, prominent uh, second generation Ventil scholar, Scott Oliphant, began promoting the thesis that God changes when he sovereignly wills to know creation. If you go back and look at God with us in some of the other books, Oliphant isn't arguing exactly the, th the same thesis that Frame is arguing. Frame says the creation uh, is the time point at which God changes. For Oliphant, if you go back and read um, Westminster, to try to hide it, pulped the great majority of his books and, and, and didn't want them to be distributed once they found out how bad the error was. But if you have a copy and you, you, can, you can locate one, um, he locates the change in God as contingent upon God's will. When God knows the world, what, what he calls free knowledge, Oliphant says it's there that God sovereignly generates what Oliphant defines as a covenantal mind characterized by progress, development, and ignorance. He says God doesn't know where Adam was hiding in the Garden of Eden. He says God doesn't know if, if Abraham believed him, Genesis 3, Genesis 22. And so for Oliphant, um, you, you have in the free knowledge of God the generation of a covenantal mind that is developmental, inferential, and ignorant, so that it can truly interact with creatures. It is an ignorant, developing, covenantal mind. And um, and I think Oliphant probably did more harm than Frame and pushed Van Til into greater obscurity and derision. Here's why. Frame at least admits in the Van Til volume from 94, Van Til analysis of his thought, he at least admits... I'm not a Vantillian, but uh, his friendliest critic. He says that. He's explicit. So you can make the argument with Frame, well, okay, look, he's not a Vantillian. He says that. He's just his friendliest critic. The, 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 the compounding problem with Oliphant in his published writings, um, and I don't, I've never seen him recant or retract this idea of um, the will of God being the instrument by which this mutable covenantal mind was formed. He says God's nature doesn't change, but he's always said that. But what, what makes the second generation um, uh, offensive Oliphant, I think, higher than Frames is that in his published writings, he claims he is a Vantillian. And in the foreword to Vantill's Common Grace in the Gospel, he attributes his error his mutualism, his biblicist, mutualist, ignorant God, the ignorant covenant of mind, he attributes that to Van Til. And so um, 
with in the case of Oliphant, you have someone claiming to be a Vantillian and denying the architectonic distinction that defines Vantill's system, which is an unqualified, immutable, triune creator. He's immutable in his necessary knowledge. He's immutable in his free knowledge. He's immutable in his decree. He's immutable in creation. He's immutable in incarnation. He's immutable in uh, consummation. And for Oliphant, he is immutable essentially, but the moment that free will, that, that will of God actualizes free knowledge, which Oliphant will then call covenantal knowledge, a covenantal mind, there is this dialectic of essentially immutable, covenantally mutable, essentially impassable, covenantally passable, essentially simple, covenantally composite. And it's a dialectic that um, if you keep pushing it back, it will become Bardian. But it's not because he doesn't mm. actualize the incarnation. So when you ask me that question, and I don't do this in this book. There, this is a separate volume that I'll get to in another two or three years. If you if you ask the question, why is Van Til so programmatically misunderstood? Well, apart from the criticisms of Gershner and, and Sproul and the DeBoers, these, the second generation Van Tillians... Uh, particularly the work of Frame, and then I think intensively the work of Oliphant, have driven people who want to be creedal, who want to be reformed, who don't want to be biblicists, who don't want to be mutualists, who want to affirm the classical reformed doctrine of God, they, they don't want to touch Van Til because they think that Van Til is the cause of these novel I call it, I think I call them neoteric in the volume. These neoteric uh, departures from creedal and reformed theology, much less the teaching of Scripture. So, Emilio, I, yeah. I, I think that you know I only have one footnote for Frame and one footnote for Oliphant. I didn't want to distract people in this volume, yep. but if you tell the rest of the story, which I just kind of did, and you primary source it. You can go from at least 2003 to 2018 on Oliphant and from at least the mid-90s up through uh, 2000s with Frame. And you can chart this sad, even tragic denial of Van Til's theology, um, either in the name of being a Van Til critic, like Frame does, or in the name of being a Van Tilian, which Oliphant does. And I think that... For, it is one of the main reasons you've seen such an acceleration of the rejection of Van Til. When Bonson was the expositor before he died in 95, Van Til was making a comeback. But when Bonson passes and these mutualists step in and biblicists step in, it is like pouring you know, kerosene on, a, on embers that then ignites into a flame. And it's driven people, I think, away from Van Til because they fear there's an organic connection. What I tried to show in the volume, there's no such organic connection between Ventil and Frame and Oliphant when it comes to the most central distinction Ventil makes between the creator and the creature in relation. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that both Frame and Oliphant make the same mutualist error, maybe from a different approach. And if there's one thing that you get from Ventil. <laughs> is that he's going directly against correlativism and mutualism, which at, is just incredible. At at every point. I'll give you one last at quick illustration. We, when yeah. we do the Van Til group, Carlton Wynn, Camden Busey, and I do the Van Til group. Mm -hmm. We've worked through the defense of the faith. Just I think we're like third chapter. I don't know. I don't remember exactly where we are. But here's the, here's the irony. Doctrine of God, Van Til, is explicit 
in denying correlativism. Doctrine of man, explicit in denying correlativism. Christ, church, last things. In the opening chapter, in every section, Van Til is reminding us that at no point does God take new qualities or properties to himself, characterized by change over time. At no point does he will a a new mode of existence. He's so explicit on that. And that's what, um, I won't call it maddening, but that's what's so disappointing about those who, at least in the name of Van Til, wanting to expound him and follow him loosely like frame or staunchly like oliphant, not only to disagree with him, but to deny his most basic premise, which is robust anti-correlativism at every point. It, it's wow. It's an it's a tragic now, irony. Yeah, no, it is. And now you mentioned Bonson. I just want to add one layer of complication there because I always regarded Bonson as the most accurate of of the proponents and the students of of Van Til. Um, but recently, you know, I've I've had a couple friends tell me, you know, that one of the reasons that they kind of shy away from Van Til is they think that Van Til is some sort of necessary or some sort of corollary to the error of theonomy. And so they're afraid that the antithesis and neutrality and things like that um, is going to lead necessarily to some sort of a theonomic view uh, of, 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 of the world. And I'm trying to tell them, no, <laughs> in fact, no, not, not if you understand the Vossian background of Van Til, you're not going to make that you're not going to make that error. You want to just speak just a little bit to that? Sure. Oh, sure, sure. Um, before there was Bonson, there was Gerhardus Voss. And um, Gerhardus Voss was, the, uh, was a professor at Old Princeton. And Van Til, along with one other student, was often only one of only two students in the classes that Voss taught because he was not a popular professor. Uh, stunningly, and there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, Danny Olinger brings them out in his book, Gerhardus of Voss. But um, Van Til inherited from Voss the doctrine of natural religious fellowship, where Adam was wholly inclined toward God in religious worship. And then Voss, in his Reformed Dogmatics and elsewhere, says that in original sin, there's not just a loss of original righteousness that was super added. That's the Roman Catholic view. So that the good nature is weakened or diminished in some way. And instead, Ventil, following Voss and the Reformed tradition, said man is entirely inclined now against God. That that being wholly inclined toward God before the fall now means by nature you're wholly inclined against him. Not as bad as you can be, but at every point. You're opposed to God in thought, in word, in deed, in reason, in will, and affection. The whole person is at enmity with God. Now, that is a fundamental entailment of creation and sin. That is robust Augustinian Calvinism, and that's where Van Til roots the antithesis. He does not go on and say the antithesis is between those who affirm the typical symbolic civil law of the theocracy as a norm and blueprint for social justice versus those who don't. That's Bonson. Bonson is taking the typical symbolic uh, laws, uh, the judicial laws that the confession says, 194, are expired 
and making them a universal rigid blueprint for socioeconomic justice, binding all magistrates and all ages until Jesus returns. Van Til never affirmed that view. Van Til followed Voss, seeing the theocracy as an intrusion of the ideal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. He did not follow, uh, did not endorse, did not um, uh, uh, encourage the, the, the theonomic views of Greg Bonson. And when he found out certain things about Rush Dooney, um, he distanced himself more and more. We've got uh, letters from Van Til to that effect. So here's what I'd say. Um, Van Til is not a theonomist. Theonomy didn't even exist when he was being trained. Van Til is a Vossian. Voss is an amillennialist. He is not post-mill. Voss is a covenant theologian, and he is uh, uh, Van Til's following Voss's covenant theology, Voss's amillennialism, and and so the I think that there's a when it when it comes to situating Van Til's relation to Bonson, I think what Bonson did is he grabbed the antithesis from Van Til without grabbing Voss behind that. And then he made formulations that would stand against Voss, against Klein and others. So I put it this way. As far as Bonson goes as an apologist and as an expounder of Van Til when it comes to method, uh, distinguishing him from evidentialism, distinguishing him from a blockhouse method, distinguishing him from other methodological approaches, Bonson stands head and shoulders above the other second generation Ventilians. There's no comparison. Vastly yeah. superior. In fact, I, I've even got, I won't read it, a 1994, in 1994 he wrote a confession for a church and he articulates a doctrine of immutability that is priceless and precious. It's it's unbelievable. It knows nothing of the mutualism of Frame, Oliphant, and these second generation types who departed from Ventil. But when it comes to Bonson as a theologian, as a theologian of redemptive history, uh, he did not develop as he should have, partly because he had already, while he was at Westmont College, I don't know how many people know this, but when he was at Westmont College, he had already written the lion's share of theonomy and Christian ethics, which he took as a THM thesis at Westminster. And so it kept him, I think, in part, from actually listening to Gaffin, actually appropriating Ritterboss and Klein, and actually letting the the theologians that Van Til admired the most, Voss and Klein, impact him. Uh, Van Til would say that Voss was his favorite professor and favorite theologian, and I've got a uh, I've seen a copy in the archives in the OPC. Van Til gives to Meredith Klein in 1969 a copy of the Christian theory of knowledge. And do you know what he calls Klein? The prince of exegetes. Mm-hmm. Meredith Klein. Wow. And, and, and what does Bonson do uh, just 10 years later? He writes uh, uh, missives and invectives against the prince of exegetes, according to Van Til. So if, mm. if you, if you, you know, and then, and then of course, Klein reciprocates and dedicates the structure of biblical authority to Van Til, the what? Prince of apologists. And so oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. So people that's, need to, no, that's if, great. Yeah. If you get into the weeds or get in a little history 
and um, get beyond what Klein called Bonson's overheated typewriter, you know, uh, uh, and stuff. If you get if you get beyond that, and I and no one, listen, I'm telling you, you'll meet no one who has more respect. I trained under Bonson. I took all the courses that he had to offer, read everything that he wrote. Yeah. Have great yeah. admiration for him as an apologist and philosopher and an expounder of Van Til's method, but he's yeah. just he just missed. F- basic formation that Van Til got from Voss yeah. and did not share the deep admiration and appreciation Van Til had for Klein. That's, yeah. that's the, yeah, the way, difference. yeah, the way that I'm putting it to, you know, a lot of young Calvinists today that are getting kind of caught up in the theonomic errors. I see it is that they've gone to the right of Van Til, uh, instead of to the left. Uh, they should have went back, right to uh, back to not only Van Til's contemporaries, uh, but obviously to Voss and Bavink and the Reformed tradition. So uh, and, and yeah. appreciate <laughs> Klein as much as Van Til did, and then yeah. you'll get the theocracy. That's right. Then you'll understand common That's grace. Right. Then you'll understand nominalism, and you have a wonderful, robust critique of postmillennial the- postmill theonomy and Christian reconstruction. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean you you, you yeah. let go of the antithesis. It just means you define it well, in a more robustly yeah. Vossian way. No, that's really good, and I think it's need it's 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 needful. You know, it's not it's because we're not trying to go on a theonomic tangent so much. But I think it is important to kind of situate Van Til in the greater kind of environment in which this discussion is going to result in any way. Bonson is inevitable, and so I think it's important to discuss that. Let's take let's let's turn a little bit here in our discussion, Lane, going back to your book, uh, and 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 just and just talking about what I think is so absolutely important to the premise of your sure, whole sure. thesis, which is Van Til's notion of the self-contained God. I want to I want to really give you time to develop this, um, to 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 explain to expound on the self-contained God, to explain uh, how this informs Van Til's notion of the God-world relation, um, and also to, to, to maybe even touch on how does the self-contained God regulate Van Til's apologetic? Yeah, well, that those are, are wonderful questions. I, I begin with a discussion uh, in the in the I guess you could call it the the first chapter proper. I think it's chapter two, uh, entitled the immutable triune creator, uh, the deeper Protestant conception of the creator creature relation. And um, what what I try to do not to to talk about the whole book, but to just give a snippet so that a cross section so that people can can hear and 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 get a, f- a feel for what I'm doing in that book. Van Til says that the triune God is self-contained. Now a lot of people don't see that language in Calvin or Turretin or Bavink. It is in Bavink some, by the way. But uh, they see that and say, I don't know what that means. What, what does that mean? That sounds a little weird. Uh, what, why does he speak that way? Well, self-contained, if you can think of it, think of self-contained as a circle. Okay, And in that circle, you place the traditional attribute set that you find outlined in the Shorter Catechism for. What is God? Well, as self-contained, he is infinite. He's a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, wholeness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is simple, not composite. 
He's impassable, cannot be acted upon, does not react, is not changed or determined by the creature. All of those attributes, pour them into that circle, and that's what Van Til means by self-contained. Now, most people would say, oh yeah, that's really basic, and doesn't doesn't frame, doesn't oliphant, don't all Van Tilians say that? Well, here's the rub, here's the key. Van Til affirmed that God is self-contained when we think of the creator-creature distinction. That is, when God's not related to the creature, he is simple, he is immutable, he's impassable, he is not determined by anything outside of himself, he's assay. Van Til affirmed that. But here, here's an irony. Karl Barth, theoretically, abstractly, could affirm that. Dorner, theoretically, abstractly, could affirm that. Schleiermacher, the- theoretically, abstractly, could affirm that. Here's, uh, and so of course, um, so so can these, uh, so can biblicists. Um, I think open theists might have a little bit of a problem with that. But as long as God isn't related to the creature and needing to know libertarian free agents, there's a there's a sense in which that can be affirmed. Dipolar theists, process theists, can affirm that abstractly about God. Here's what Ventil says though that's so key: God is not only self-contained up apart from his relation to creation, but he remains self-contained in the relation. God does not add a new mode of existence that's historical, temporal, like frame. God does not generate new composite properties like ignorance and mutability and passability in order to relate to creation. God remains self-contained in his new relation to creation. He doesn't change when he knows the world outside of himself in free knowledge. He doesn't change when he decrees. He doesn't change when he creates. He doesn't change when he forms Adam from the dust of the ground as the image of God. He doesn't change when he reveals to him the special terms of the covenant. The person of the Son does not change in the event of the incarnation. God remains self-contained apart from and in his sovereignly willed relation to creation. And Emilio, uh, one, one way to summarize it, and this is what separates Van Til from the second generation group I mentioned earlier. It's what separates him from all forms of process theism, all forms of neo-orthodoxy, um, just any form of correlativism or mutualism. Van Til, and this is my way of summarizing it, Van Til maintains the creator-creature distinction in the creator creature relation god doesn't god god isn't self limited or self modified he doesn't mutate or change in that relation and when you get that um it's beautiful because self contained means he is infinite eternal and unchangeable simple and impassable apart from creation infinite eternal and unchangeable simple and impassable um in relation to creation, immutable apart from and immutable in relation to creation. That's what Van Til means by self-contained. Once you understand that, do you see what a beautiful summary term it is? That's why I use it. That's why Van Til used it. And that's why I would never shy away from using it. It's not a, it's, it's not a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a wonderfully helpful catch-all phrase to affirm the immutable glory of the triune God apart from and in relation to creation. And, and, and so 
I, t- I titled that f- that second chapter, the first major chapter, I titled it The Immutable Triune Creator. And <laughs> if I uh, were to change that title at all, I might change it to The Self-Contained because self-contained says more than just immutable. It includes immutable, but affirms more. It affirms yeah. everything that we want to say about God's attributes in a in a helpful yeah. catch-all way, so I I love it, and I now, hope our readers, yeah. hope your listeners, now, do you and our, think and that the language the of a self-contained will God also uh, informs uh, Van Til's understanding of knowledge? In other words, how God uh, comes to um, to, be, to basically be what Van Til later calls, you know. Um, uh, you know, um, God interpreted facts, uh, no brute facts, you know, those kinds of, of ideas. Somewhere in the defense of the faith, you know, Van Til talks about God knowing himself by one eternal act of vision. And, uh, and, and, and so how, how, does the, how does the knowledge of God relate to the self-contained God? Yes. Well, th- there's a great let, let me let me give you I I've been reading um, uh, Turretin a lot because uh, Danny Olinger has pointed out uh, that think, yeah. that Voss was very dependent on Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology, and so there's a there's a very strong um, mediation of Turretin through Voss that Van Til imbibed, and I don't want to I'm not going to read it, but when Turretin talks about the knowledge of God, um, before he makes a distinction between the free knowledge of God, and uh, the necessary knowledge of God, and the free knowledge of God, God knowing himself on the one side, God knowing all things possible and actual outside of himself on the other side. Uh, Turretin says that um, w- when we talk about the, the, the uh, knowledge of God, and the quote-unquote intellect of God. He says that that mode consists in the knowing of all things perfectly, undividedly, distinctly, and immutably. It is distinguished from human and angelic knowledge perfectly because he knows all things by himself or by his essence, not from abstracted things as with creatures. Undividedly, because he knows all things intuitively and noetically, not discursively, like creatures. Distinctly, not that by a diverse conception he collects diverse predicates of things, but because he most distinctively sees through all things mm-hmm. at once. That's the vision, the the, the uh, knowledge of vision Ventil's talking about. So that nothing, the most minute, can escape him. And immutably, because with him there is no shadow of change, as he himself remaining immovable gives motion to all, so he sees the various turns and changes of things by an immutable cognition. Now, brother, that summary there by Turretin implies the simple and undivided and immutable character of God's knowledge. And one of the things that Van Til makes so clear and what earlier I said was denied by one of the second generation Vantillians, namely Oliphant. Van Til is going to, to tell us this, that God has one mode of knowledge that corresponds to his one mode of being. 
that his knowledge is immutable, undivided, and simple. It does not make progressions through time. He he knows where Adam is. He knows if Abraham trusts in him. He knows all things by an eternal act of intuition and has a vision of the whole when it comes to his free knowledge. And that stands over against all forms of mutualism because I'll, I'll put it this way. Hard mutualism says God changes in his being. That's direct. Soft or indirect mutualism says, well, God, God might not change in his being. Um, uh, all offense is central attributes, but he changes in his knowledge. Free knowledge changes, develops over time. It's discursive, developmental. He has an ignorant, developing covenantal mind. Van Til, following Turretin, following Bobbing, following Voss, ascribes simple, immutable, exhaustive knowledge of all things to God's mind. So before you make any distinctions between necessary and free knowledge, that's in place. And once that's in place, mm. it is impossible mm -hmm. to say, well, yeah. maybe God's being doesn't what, what, change, but his knowledge does. What, if so. you can, uh, um, what was the reference the, to Turretin the, again? Where was, that, where was that found, if you can find that again? By Ventil at every point. Oh, if you want it, it's, it's in the 12th question, the knowledge of God. 12th question, knowledge of God, and it's Roman numeral 2. 12th question, knowledge of God, Roman numeral 2, and it's um, and it's from um, Institutes. Uh, let me see if I can get the page number for you. Um, look it up. Um, it is from, um, for, just for your listeners, it is from um, Volume 1 yeah. of the Institutes, <laughs> page 207. Volume 1, page 207, 12th topic, Knowledge of God, Roman numeral 2. Yeah, I'm a stickler for citations, so thank you so much for that. Absolutely, brother. And, and uh, that, but that it's citation... It's got to be profitable, right? <laughs> it's got to be profitable. And, and, and Van Til, uh, you know, he says, just, just to clue listeners in so they'll see this. When Van Til talks about this, he says, this is his language. He says, the being and knowledge of God are coterminous. That's what he means. When he says the being... The being and knowledge of God are coterminous. He means that God knows all things perfectly, undividedly, distinctly, and immutability, and immutably distinguished from creatures because he does not gain knowledge or develop understanding through time. All things are given immediately by an immutable, simple, and exhaustive mm. cognition. No, that's great. That's really great. Um Let's let's come back to the issue of mutualism uh, because I think that for a lot of people, as I as I as I'm reading different different people writing uh, on on the doctrine of God, um, mutualism is kind of downplayed at times as a threat uh, that it's overblown that no one actually is holding to divine mutualism, um, but even at the practical level, even even at the practical theology level, practical Reformed authors, I quoted a couple to you last time you and I uh, were together here in Texas, uh, where, where basically God is so hyper-personalized and hyper-relatable that he goes beyond the anthropomorphic and he enters into what can only be called mutualism. 
So how, how serious, therefore, is the threat of mutualism, and how, um, how detrimental or how determinative is that for your program of theology? Yeah, um, well, I want to just uh, tip a hat to a dear friend of mine, James Dolezal, who uh, has, has written a book, um, All That Is In God, and he does a fantastic, admirable job at alerting us to the fact that mutualism is much more prominent than we think. Uh, he doesn't say it at every point, but I think that's because kind of a, a biblicism is much more uh, uh, prominent than we think. And I'll tell you, uh, g- let, let me try to be practical. Um, I always view myself as being practical, but let me try especially hard to be to be practical here. Herman Bovink talks in his Reformed Dogmatics. I don't have the in my mind right where this is, and I won't read a quotation. But he says that the doctrine of immutability is of the utmost religious importance. Uh, and what what he means by that, Emilio, is this: that when we're talking about this doctrine of a of a of a finite God, or he has an, a covenantal mind that develops over time and is ignorant, so that he can be really interactive with us, just get right there and interact with us with an ignorant developing mind. Um, that kind of of theology, a lot of people say, well, look, what practical difference does it make? Practically speaking, what difference does it make? Um, and Bavink has um, a couple of points on that. Voss does something similar. But Bavink says the, the first uh, problem with it, when you're talking about it, 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 it's, it, it gives you no religious hope. And here's why. If God covenantally in his mind, this developing ignorant covenant mind, if he doesn't know the future as he is your God in time, if your God in time, in covenant, does not know the future, doesn't know where Adam and Eve are hiding, doesn't know if Abraham believes him, doesn't know the future, you cannot have any assurance that his promises are faithful and true. So let me put it this way. It the, the issue is not just one of theological heterodoxy. The issue is a religious failure. The, a doctrine of, an, of a mutable composite developmental God fails people religiously. The Father does not change as he gives every good and perfect gift. And if his works don't change, his promises don't change. But if he does change when he works. If he does change when he promises, we have a huge crisis. And and so let me put it this way, Emilio. Um, the, the practical value of this, the religious value of this, is that if God is living and immutable and does not change, when he promises something, it is the greatest certainty on which you can pin your existence and future hopes. But if he changes, if he's mutable, if he's ignorant, if he's developing, you really have no hope. And tender consciences, um, minds that are reflective, will be terrified and plagued and tormented 
by immutable God. So here's the irony. I think uh, Clark Pennock and the Open Theists. I think um, others, uh, Karl Barth, the the second generation of Antillians I've talked about. I think they're trying to be practical, trying to give you a God who is relatable, trying to give you something of religious value. In fact, I've heard one of those, I won't tell you who, say that his view of the mutability of God as condescended is of great religious value to him. Well, the, the, the real point is that it dis- destroys true religion as defined in the scriptures and summarized in the creeds and confessions. And so this really is of just uh, enormous practical and religious value to affirm an unqualified doctrine, uh, a doctrine of unqualified immutability. There is no hope without it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 really good. Um, in your book, you also, when you develop um, just all of the, you know, all of the the theology of the processions uh, when you get into Autotheon and and all of the, you know, all, just everything relating to the persons and subsistence and all of that, I saw tremendous agreement between you and Brandon Ellis, Brandon Ellis's book on Calvin and aseity, the aseity of the sun, uh, particularly when we're talking about subordinationistic views. With subordinationism, um, you know, how, how is Calvin's doctrine of aseity, uh, perichoresis, the self-contained God, how is that protecting us in Reformed theology from all these different species, both ancient and contemporary, of subordinationism. Yeah, well, let let me just put it this way, Um, and this is counterintuitive for many, but in the volume, I cite where Van Til, in explicit dependence on Warfield, notes that Calvin's doctrine of the Son as autotheos, the autothean conception of personhood, is an attempt to safeguard the doctrine of homoousios, that the Son is of the same substance as the Father. And autotheos, as developed by Calvin, was an attempt to safeguard that ancient Catholic affirmation of homoousios. And the way that that works is is in this way. Um, The Son, if the Son has his essence of himself... And the Father has his essence of himself. You have such a robust and clear mechanism in place, instrument in place, to express full-orbed homoousios, the same substance. Neither is communicated, neither is derived. Both have essence of self. Uh, Both are personally and permanently in the Godhead, both personally have our ase. And and Calvin was concerned, I think, and Ellis is very helpful here. I cite him and just say that I think his yeah. uh, his work has, uh, if possible, it may have superseded Warfield's work in terms of the scope and the clarity he achieved. And that's saying something. That's quite a compliment to Ellis for his work. But yeah. if if you if you don't 
affirm autotheos, then it's easy to easier, Calvin thought, to slip into some notion that in the quote-unquote donation of the essence, the son's deity is somehow derived because communicated. That's what Calvin's trying to safeguard. Now, there may be people who hold to a, a different view of the processions who say, but that's not what happens, and perhaps it's not. But Calvin's concern is to reform the, the, the theology of the processional relations of personal origin in order to safeguard and maximize the clarity of the church's confession of the son as homoousios. And he thought that autotheos did that because it avoids the idea of a communicated essence which could trend in the direction of a derived essence or a derived deity. And mm. uh, and so I think that Calvin is probably least appreciated today for that insight. And it strikes me as concerning when people want to call themselves Calvinists they talk about God's sovereignty. They talk about total depravity. They talk about irresistible grace. They talk about limited atonement. They should begin with autotheos. That is uh, mm. perhaps, as Warfield says, and yeah. Van Til follows, yeah. one of his most ingenious and helpful uh, contributions that aids in our critique of a Catholicizing direction that we mentioned earlier. I guess I would follow that up, uh, Lane, by asking you a question that a response that I've heard in return has to do with a communication of essence or essential communication, but somehow within the essence. I know you've heard of this, and then uh, I want to ask you about um, Warfield's rejection of eternal generation. And so let's let's just start first with sort of an intra-essential communication, and does that—what's wrong with that proposal? Well, you know, I'm not sure if you if you have a particular person in view, um, I could I could deal with that a little more readily. But just to talk broadly, um, when we're talking about the communication of essence in the standard discussions of medieval and reformed trinitarian theology you're talking about a relation that is notional uh, or a relation that is personal the relation between the father and the son and the the communication of person and the communication of essence are conjoined there is a communication both of essence and person in the generative act of God. Um, if you start to, to back away from that processional relation of personal origin and talk about a, an intra-essential uh, communication, um, it, it, starts to, it starts to sound like a communication of essence without any kind of personal processional relation in place. Uh, at least to me. Now, we could put specific formulations, specific quotations up and deal with it. But I think what Calvin uh, was was wanting to say is that, um, and, and I, th I think, I believe Ellis deals with this at uh, a few points in his volume. I think what Calvin was wanting to say is we're, we're talking 
about a processional relation of personal origin. And in that processional relation, Calvin wanted to affirm a communication of person and not a communication of essence. Now, one essay that we could talk about, maybe you could have him on one of these days, one essay that I've read that tried to challenge that on Calvin was written by Benji Swinburneson. It was published in K-Rooks. He's a dear friend of mine, tremendous theologian, great Vossian, great Vantillian. And he he took a view that would not comport with the, the view of... of um, of um, Ellis in in his book on Calvin, Ellis, that Calvin, Ellis, yeah. yeah, that Calvin might have some notion of a of an of, of a communication of the essence along the lines you're suggesting, but I, I think when we um, when we look at Ellis's work, we look at Warfield's work, and we look at Van Til, regardless of that debate, mm-hmm. Van Til is following what you might call the the received tradition at Princeton of Calvin's view of autotheos, especially in the work of Warfield. Um, so um, hmm. it, it it's a and and to be honest with you on the on the the issue of Warfield uh, and the the discussion of whether he denied or affirmed eternal generation. Um, that would be that might be an uh, uh, something for a an almost an episode in itself. I'd need to look at the best scholarship on that and assess those arguments and and then try to address them in light of those particular arguments. Uh, so I'm I'm not sure I I want to jump in on that particular issue uh, without without looking back yeah. at some of the debates that are around that. I don't want to I don't want to speak to it without missing some of the nuances in that that narrow discussion. Sure. And I just think we're coming back to Van Til as we come close to our, our time here, um, it's all of these ontological issues in the essential trinity, that all of these things are to buttress, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, all of these things are to buttress this notion of a self-contained God that is foundational to all of our... Uh, to to our worldview, I guess we could yes. say, and so um, I, I think that's the I think that's the way that Van Til is incorporating all these issues. Yeah, yeah. It's it. Whatever else we say about autothean personhood, is it serves anti-correlativism, anti-subordinationism, and a trinitarian theology that serves a reformed doctrine of image and covenant. That deserves all the emphasis we can give it. Whatever else Van Til's doing, he wants a Trinitarian theology that underwrites not the Roman Catholic conceptions of nature and grace, but that directly underwrites the Reformed conceptions of image and covenant. Not image and donum, but image and covenant. And that I think that is the... It, we're, that's a good guide, uh, so so that Van Til didn't address some of these other issues in the um, the interpretation yeah. of Calvin. What he did is he took that insight as it was inherited through Warfield, and he applied it to a doctrine of image and covenant, and formed what I know we will we, probably wind up talking about this down the road. Formed a thoroughgoing. Um, integration 
of classical Reformed Fed, uh, Trinitarianism and classical Reformed Federalism in opposition to all forms of correlativism, ancient, medieval, and modern. And mm. so, so th- that's kind mm. of a good guideline yeah. as, as you're thinking about autotheos. What's it serving? Yeah. Anti-correlativism, anti-subordinationism, yeah. and it's grounding a, a Reformed theology of image and covenant. That's the key. Mm. Amen. So rich. Brother, so rich. Thank you so much, uh, Lane. Brother, thank you so much for taking so much time and for joining for us so me. far for these episodes. These are absolutely... Brother, these are essential. These are important. This is, uh, you know, there's quite a few people that are obviously looking for this kind of content and are, I know they're going to benefit from this. Uh, maybe next time in, uh, you know, in our next episode, we can, we can touch on uh, absolute personality and um, the sure. absolute personal condition of, of the covenant between God and man and all of those things. But Brother Lane, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Make sure and uh, share, uh, subscribe, and enjoy. God bless you all.